March 27, 2011, First Church and Parish in Dedham, the Reverend Raleigh Weaver, Living with Loss. Can you imagine if every day was as perfect as a sunny vacation? Okay, I know some of you are retired. Maybe you feel that way for a couple of days at a time. But I doubt that any of us ever feel completely carefree every day of our lives. If we are honest, we all learned early on in life that obstacles are a part of life. And even if we never learn how to make sense of them, we know that death, disappointment, and loss are things we all have to deal with. Just home from a vacation in sunny Florida, my memories include millions of magical moments full of sunshine, sea breezes, wonderful food, and amazing sights. But if I'm honest, there were an equal number of long lines, joyless car rides, sleepless nights, and rashes, too. Life is full of joy and sorrow, easy times and obstacles. We cannot really have one without the other, and to focus too much in any one direction would prevent us from living fully and leave us unprepared for life's journey. If we went into the deep woods without considering the black flies or mosquitoes, we wouldn't have bug spray and nets to defend ourselves. Or if in retelling our story we did not share our mishaps with black flies and mosquitoes with others, no neophyte hiker would think to pack their bug spray either. Planning pays off. Learning from mistakes and our experience pays off. But I must admit that most of the time I want the spontaneity that comes from no planning at all. Sometime in my early 30s, a friend suggested that we hike Mount Katahdin in Maine. Having hiked together many times, I trusted her experience and agreed to go along without thinking too much about it. Looking back, I realized I knew about as little as a person could know about where we were going. I did not know that the name Katahdin meant the greatest mountain to the Penobscot Indians, or that the highest mountain in that it's the highest mountain in Maine, or that it is the start of the Appalachian Trail. I did not know that the mountain is located in a hundred mile wilderness and topped with a knife's edge that my friend expected us to cross. With no planning, little preparation, and next to no idea of where we were headed, we started up the trail that most hikers go down, and we got up to the top, and I realized my irrational fear of heights that I could not make it across the knife's edge, and that we did not have time to return on the same path we'd come up, we ended up going down a precipitous route most hikers avoid going down. It was a harrowing journey that started at sunrise and ended just after sunset. That a bit of planning could have made a bit less traumatic. Looking back on this experience, I can say with authority that preparation is one key in managing life's ups and downs. A pack of gum at the airport and sunscreen at the beach, an ace bandage in your backpack on a long hike can be enough to turn a humongous disappointment into a minor hurdle. So why don't we prepare for all of life's eventualities in that way? For example, if we all know we're going to die someday, then why aren't we thinking about our legacy now? How many of us have a current will or considered our funeral arrangements? 
Who here has told our family and friends how important they are to us or done everything in our I have to do this before I die list? If life has an ending, why aren't we preparing for it the day we are born? I believe it is because most of us want to live in the now. Now I am living and I just want to be alive. I want to feel the love and the dancing and smell the flowers that Lawrence Ferlinghetti writes of. And yet the smiling mortician always gets in the way. Both the kissing people and making babies and the dead minds in high places and the bombs in upturned faces are part of living in this world we are in. To pretend otherwise would be quixotic. In other words, to live in the now most of us take an overly romanticized view of life. When things do not work out the way we want them to, when bad things happen, when we want to we want to keep going and keep hoping for a brighter day. Buddhists explain hope and fear as two sides of the same coin. If we are to hope for something, to be better than it is, we are at the same time tapping into the fear that comes when it doesn't turn out the way we want it to. As many of you know, at the end of last summer, I had to have a hysterectomy. According for the dis- the Center for Disease Control, approximately 600,000 women a year have hysterectomies. It is the second most common surgery for women in their reproductive years and affects a quarter of women in the U.S. by the time they reach 60. I bring this up because if you had asked me two or three years ago if I thought I would have children someday, I would have answered yes. In my heart of hearts, I always hoped I would be a mother, but I always thought I had plenty of time. My hopes were set on having children, and my fears were not even focused on losing that possibility, even though the odds were that at my 45 years, at 45 years old, my fertility options were quickly diminishing. In reality, I've have never in my life been proposed to, I've never been married, I've never been pregnant, and not even really close to starting a family, and if I had been awake to the true odds in my favor, I would have realized a long time ago that I was much more statistically likely to have a hysterectomy than I was to have a child. If I had stayed awake to the reality of my situation, instead of hoping for things to be different than than what they were in reality, I might have saved myself some of the loss and heartache I experienced last spring and summer. If I could have been paying more attention, I might have noticed the fibroid growing in my abdomen before it had gotten so large it was leaning on my kidneys. If I had been more realistic about my life's experience, I might have realized sooner how lucky I am to be witness in countless children's lives and seen more readily the drawbacks of giving birth and caring for a baby of my own in my current profession. The second part of living with loss and disappointment in life has to do with waking up to the reality of the life that surrounds you and not allowing yourself to stay more focused either on your hopes or your fears, but living in the place in between where both the joy and the sadness lie side by side. There are so many things we don't have control over, and no matter how much we pay attention, there will be things that happen unexpectedly. Children often do things 
we would not plan for them. Friends and spouses and relatives die unexpectedly. People leave jobs, move away. Over time, we all lose things. Mobility, eyesight, hearing. And the best way to stay present amidst all the inevitable losses is to simply take a good look around and acknowledge the truth of how things really are. This is what I love about C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed. In it, he takes a long, hard look at his feelings after the loss of his wife, Joy Gresham, and puts down their descriptions in writing. To have an idea of a loving God who would never want you to suffer, and then to lose the one love of your life can create discord in any life. Lewis received a great deal of criticism because his readers did not believe a true Christian could come so close to despair, and yet reading it in a place of despair, this book offers clarity. Grief is a lonely process, and the edges of it are so foggy But when we examine our losses and truly open to them, we give them structure and support. Deep loss leaves you in a type of shock, and slowing down and paying attention to it can help you to awaken in ways that closing your eyes and pretending nothing happened cannot. To my mind, what is required to live with loss is that we acknowledge the truth of our losses— to see and talk about the way things really are. To live fully, we must acknowledge the danger of the hike and the petty annoyances of the bugs, while at the same time relishing in the triumph of finishing it. We must grieve what is no longer available to us, while fully recognizing the new possibilities that open up. I know from experience that Resistance to opening fully to sadness is the fear that if we give it too much oxygen, it will extinguish any hope in our hearts and leave us bereft forever. While I can find absolutely no scientific study to prove what I'm about to say to you, I'm quite certain that more people have remained stuck in their sadness after pretending their losses haven't happened than those who have truly wallowed in their grief for a while. I miss the days of wearing black when someone you loved died, or victory gardens, as though growing vegetables would help the soldiers overseas. To live fully amidst our losses, we must give them voice and form so that they can live with us in our real lives. To live with loss is to live fully, openly, completely, amidst everything that life throws our way. It isn't exactly a vacation but it does mean that we are fully alive.